The Brian McClanahan Show, episode 443. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to The Brian McClanahan Show. So glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter, like my Facebook page, and subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast. You can find all those social media accounts on my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's B-R-I-O-N, mcclanahan.com. While you're there, give me an email address. I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, and a free audiobook of the same title read by yours truly. You can support the show by going to mclanahanacademy.com, mclanahanacademy.com. Always free to enroll. You get a free class, 10 Myths of American History. When you do enroll... And you get the best deals on new and forthcoming courses. I will have a course coming out in June sometime. So if you hop on over to that email list at McClanahan Academy by giving me an email address there or enrolling, you're going to get those good coupons. I also run sales here and there. And if you're at McClanahan Academy, you're going to get those sales too. So it's a great win-win for you. You can purchase one of my over a dozen courses there. It's actually approaching 20 courses now. And that keeps this podcast free of charge. You can also click on that support tab at brianmcclanahan.com. You can throw a few pennies my way. You can get a book plate if you want my autograph on one of my books. You can purchase one of my books. You can get those at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Books A Million, wherever books are sold. I've got a lot of books out there too. Seven, in fact. A new one coming out probably also at the end of this month. So a lot of good stuff coming from Brian McClanahan Show and McClanahan Academy in the next month or so. You want to look out for that. And of course, share this podcast around on social media, rate it wherever you get your podcast. Let people know you're thinking locally and acting locally. That's the best way to expand the audience and, of course, get people more interested in what I'm doing and what you're interested in because you're listening to the show. And if you have any recommendations for a show, I'd love to hear them. Send them my way. I may not respond to your email, but I do read my emails. So uh, if you think that you want to hear something in particular, keep in mind, though, it has to be something I can talk about for an extended amount of time, and it has to be something that you think would be interesting to the audience as a whole. So, uh, you know, very narrow topics are hard to do. So keep that in mind when you're sending me recommendations. All right, well, let's talk about the topic of the day. And it's a little bit, the way I'm going to have to structure this is uh, is maybe odd. Okay, and I'll say that because I'm going to talk about a historical subject, but I'm going to put it within context of what's going on today as well. Uh, and history is, let me just say this about history. History is not uh, something that you can use to predict future events. You can say that these things might happen based on historical actions. But culture is lasting. And I think that's an important part of what I'm going to hammer home on this particular piece. Culture is lasting. And while people do similar things in similar situations, which is where you get this idea that history repeats itself, it really doesn't. Culture matters. And I think what we're seeing in America today in this culture war that we're seeing is a long-standing problem in American culture. First of all, there isn't really a unifying or a singular American culture. That doesn't exist. I think David Hackett Fisher put that to rest in his Albion Seed. But this idea that there somehow is an Americanism, I mean, this is something that the neoconservatives like to push around there's an Americanism. The left even does this as well, though they, 
their idea is that diversity is strength, and that creates kind of an Americanism. But the, the neoconservatives are certainly interested in a Lincolnian unifying culture of America. There's, there's this American nationalism. And, of course, members of the founding generation talked about this, too, whether it was John Marshall or James Wilson. You certainly had nationalists in that group, and they believed there was an American culture. Alexander Hamilton, of course, uh, in, that, in that regard as well. But most Americans recognize that there were massive cultural differences in the United States, massive differences between these colonies, whether it was Virginia, Massachusetts, or Georgia, even Georgia and Virginia at times, or uh, New York and Massachusetts, New York and Virginia. People don't realize that when you read The Legend of Sleepy Hollow by Washington Irving, what he was doing there is criticizing New Englanders, Yankees. He didn't like them. New York had its own particular culture that was alien to someone from Connecticut or Massachusetts. They just didn't get along, and Ichabod Crane was a typical Yankee, whereas the people that were defending the honor of this family in so many ways in New York were New Yorkers, Knickerbockers, and these were people that were different. And so it's important that we realize that, and that in America, and I did a whole podcast on this at one point, there are different definitions of, of liberty. We hear that term quite often, you know, give me liberty or give me death, or uh, we're, we're doing this in support of liberty. We're a libertarian, whatever these terms you want to use, but there are certainly different definitions of liberty. And what we've seen in the current crisis in America, whether it's the, uh, when I say crisis, I'm talking about the, uh, the COVID issue, the lockdowns, the, uh, the masking, all of these things. What we're seeing is a particular type of American liberty. And that particular type of American liberty is puritanical liberty. And the people that are pushing it the most are the modern-day political Puritans. Now, these are people like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. This is the squad. This is Nancy Pelosi. This is even Joe Biden, in a way. If you'll notice, Joe Biden did idiotic things like wear a mask on a Zoom call with world leaders. Why? Because he's setting the standard for what people should do. That is a form of puritanical liberty. And you see, that on, on the side of that, even Nancy Pelosi got involved in the other side of this at times. The Puritans certainly believe that if you achieve status in society, then you didn't have to follow all the rules. The Puritans thought that if you became one of the leaders of society, then you, could, you had liberty to not follow the rules. But all the schlubs had to follow the rules. This is Nancy Pelosi when California was completely locked down going into a hair salon without a mask on. All the hair salons were closed, but yet she had to go do this. So there's liberty for me, but not for thee, at least individual liberty. But the idea is that there's going to be community liberty. You see, the basis of all the lockdowns and the shutdowns and the masking and everything else, which the left has developed a, some, a type of mental illness over this. And we've seen it. Rachel Maddow, I don't know. It's going to take a long time for me to not be afraid of people if they're not wearing a mask. I mean, this has created a phobia in America. It's a mental illness in many ways for people just to act normal. And we see it across the board. Alexander Ocasio-Cortez, fully vaccinated woman, saying she's going to continue to wear a mask inside. Even though the CDC, for whatever the CDC is worth, has now come out and said, you don't have to do that. If you're vaccinated, don't wear a mask. Don't do it. You don't have to do it inside, outside. 
The other day, she was wearing a mask outside with a reporter. Again, this is a form of mental illness. But the idea is simple, that if everyone just wore a mask, if the community would somehow rally around giving up individual liberty, then we would have the liberty of the community. In other words, we wouldn't have to fear COVID-19. It's a freedom from fear. This is, this is Franklin Roosevelt in 1933 when he stands up and says, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. It's exactly what he was hammering home at that particular time. So you have this idea of communal liberty. If we take down these statues, which now Joe Biden has signed an order taking down statues, I mean, it's, they're not protected any longer. We're not going to have this monument garden. But if we, if we take down these symbols of white supremacy, then we would have greater liberty in our community. There would be a freedom from the fear of these things. Now, I'm not so certain how an inanimate object can make you fearful of anything, unless it's going to fall on your head some way. But regardless, it's the freedom from fear that we're dealing with, and that is a puritanical position. The Puritans, the New Englanders, their definition of what liberty means has won the day in America, and it's won the day among the progressives. Bill Maher pointed out, I didn't think the left was going to be the people that would go out and cut out everything fun in society. You can't make jokes uh, at all because of cancel culture. You can't really do anything. I mean, if you're, you know, you're shaming people, mass shaming them and all these other kind of things. This is a mental illness. And it is a offshoot, it's an offshoot of the Puritans of the 17th century who had this very draconian society. And any heretics would be dealt with violently. I mean, you think about what happened in Massachusetts with witches. And what were witches really in Massachusetts? They weren't really witches. But they were heretics. They were women who didn't toe the line of Puritan theology. And so they were classified as witches and executed oftentimes. It's a, it is a vicious and violent way of dealing with heretics. And you look at what's happening in cancel culture. This is the exact same thing. If you oppose the establishment and the establishment position on the left, you're a heretic and you must be dealt with. That means your speech can be silenced. Your, li- your job is forfeit. Anything they can do to harm you. This, the, the Puritans were not interested in civil liberties at all. Unless you were a main member of, of the group, and then you could practice some civil liberties. But if you were not, if you were just a schlub, a commoner, you were not allowed the same civil liberties as you were, say, in Virginia. Or in Pennsylvania. Or in Georgia. Pennsylvania, by the way, the Quakers were the most civil libertarians of the entire groups of people that settled in North America. They believed in reciprocal liberty. Every liberty demanded should be returned in kind. So if they demanded freedom of speech, they would allow you to have freedom of speech. If they demanded freedom of religion, you would have freedom of religion. I mean, this was important to the Quaker community. Now, the Quakers were complex, though. One of these days, I'm going to round up talking about a group of Quakers who settled in New York that were large slave owners. So there's that to it. But certainly, out of all the groups, out of all the groups that settled in British, the British North American colonies, the Quakers were the most interested in reciprocal liberty, civil libertarians. The Virginians were as well. I mean, and of course, the backcountry people, these people from the borderlands, oftentimes, you know, Ireland, Scotland, 
uh, Wales, many Germans. A lot of these people would settle into the Piedmont area, and of course, they were interested in individual liberty. This was freedom from, I'm sorry, a freedom to, or freedom from this oppression, but freedom to do whatever they wanted. Now, in Virginia, they had what you described as hegemonic liberty, meaning that the the ruling class would have a tremendous amount of liberty, but they jealously protected that, and because they jealously protected it, they also gave it to people who were not in the ruling class. I mean, that's, that's a whole other part of it as well. But I want to read a story, it's a long-winded way of saying I, I want to get to the story, about the first, what's considered to be the first banned book in America. And where did that happen? Not in Virginia, not in Pennsylvania, not in New York, not in Georgia or the Carolinas. People say, oh, yeah, those Southerners were banning books back in the 1830s. You couldn't produce abolitionist literature in the South. These people didn't believe in the civil liberties. The first banned book, the first banned book in America was in Massachusetts. And it happened pretty shortly after the Plymouth Colony was founded. Now, I have to make a distinction here. This this piece I'm going to read calls the Pilgrims Puritans. Now, that's that's not entirely correct. It is correct that they had an idea that they were going to purify Christianity. They were going to put it more in line with the original church doctrines. But they were... Separatists. These weren't people who were part of the Church of England, so to speak. The Puritans were members of the Church of England. They weren't. Dis- they they were dissenters, but they weren't separatists. And so, when you get to the English Civil War, you have the Puritans fighting the Cavaliers, who were the much more orthodox Anglicans against those who wanted to purify the church and make it more Protestant. But they stayed within the church. The pilgrims were separatists. They were living in a whole other country. They were living in the Netherlands when they emigrated to America in 1620. They weren't part of England anymore. They had left English society. These people were separatists all the way. And... So they were not necessarily the Puritans that you think of when you use that term. But they were very interested in a closed society. And so in some ways, this is a Think Locally, Act Locally episode. When you look at the Puritans or the Pilgrims or the Virginians, all these they, they had closed societies at this time. They, they, they were very much interested in maintaining a certain type of culture within their own borders. If you dissented from that, then you could face prosecution. Now, we can look at that prosecution as barbaric, because it often was. Whereas the, where the Puritans deviated from this, and the pilgrims, they became very imperialistic at times. If you were close by and you were not following their doctrines, they would go after you to try to force you either to leave or to convert to their way of thinking. The Virginians weren't necessarily in line with this all the time. The Virginians, by the way, were much more committed to religious liberty. The South Carolinians, the New Yorkers, the Pennsylvanians, all much more committed to religious liberty than anyone in Massachusetts ever was. In Massachusetts, you had a rigid, and then by default, Connecticut, 
and then ultimately New Hampshire, and even into Maine, ultimately, eventually, you had a much more rigid doctrinaire belief system, and you had to follow it or you were going to be banned, ostracized, booted out. That wasn't the case in other parts of the colonies. Now, when you get to Maryland, and you look at Maryland as the Catholic colony, there certainly was religious conflict in Maryland between Protestants who had already settled in that area and then the ruling Catholic family, the Calverts that came in and tried to control the colony. But regardless, most people in America were much more committed to religious liberty and freedom of speech than the Puritans. And so what we're seeing in modern American society, these are the political Puritans that we have. Say the wrong thing, they're going to go after you on social media. They're going to try to cancel you. They're going to try to do away with you. Now, not physically anymore. But they're going to do it in a way to ruin your life. So they don't believe in this idea of freedom of speech. At all. Freedom, freedom of press. They don't believe in it. You have to follow the orthodox leftist progressive line. And if you don't, and you somehow step out of that, and you make a mistake, you better decide you're going to take a hiatus. You're going to go on sabbatical from these things and work on yourself as you are. I'm going to work on myself. What does that actually mean? It's just ridiculous. So let me read this story. The title is, America's first banned book really ticked off the Plymouth Puritans. Apparently, Thomas Morton didn't get the memo. The English businessman arrived in Massachusetts in 1624 with the Puritans. He wasn't exactly on board with the strict, insular, and pious society they had hoped to build for themselves. Now, again, 1624, you haven't gotten to the Massachusetts Bay Colony yet. And so, you're in this, this shadow area. It's about six years that the pilgrims dominate Massachusetts Bay. And yes, they're puritanical in some ways, but they were different. They were separatists. He was very much a dandy and a playboy, says William Heath, a retired professor from Mount St. Mary's University who has published extensively on the Puritans. Looking back, Morton and his neighbors were bound to butt heads sooner or later. Within just a few short years, Morton established his own unrecognized offshoot of the Plymouth Colony, in what is now the town of Quincy, Massachusetts, the birthplace of Presidents John Adams and John Quincy Adams. He revived forbidden old world customs, faced off with a Puritan militia determined to quash his pagan festivals, and wound up in exile. He eventually sued, and like any savvy rabble-rouser should, got a book deal out of the whole affair. Published in 1637, his New English Canaan mounted a harsh and heretical critique of Puritan, uh, Puritan customs and power structures that went far beyond what most New English settlers could accept. So they banned it, making it likely the first book explicitly banned in what is now the United States. A first edition of Morton's Tell-All, which among other things compares the Puritan leadership to crustaceans, recently sold at auction at Christie's for $60,000. So think about what he did. He called out the ruling culture and class of Massachusetts. He bucked this type of ordered liberty. Liberty of the community over individual liberty. This is what he did. Now, 
again, we can look at these closed societies. I, I, I promote Think Locally, Act Locally. It is my, my slogan for my show. And I often say, sweep around your own back door first, worry about your community first. The United States has adopted a much more, at least in theory, Quaker-driven view of liberty than anything else, though the left doesn't believe it. And I've had people tell me at times, gosh, you're really hard on the Puritans. Why are you so hard on the Puritans? These are people in the South and other, you're really hard on these Puritans. The Puritans are good. I mean, they advocated things that are good. And you look at the dominant Congregationalist churches in America, the Baptists and the Methodists, and they're both offshoots of the Puritans. The Methodists uh, more in line with the traditional, more traditional Anglican church than the Baptists. But certainly, they've adopted some of the Puritanical customs that uh, I'm, I'm talking about here. So there's a, there's a little bristling when I bring these things up. The problem is the Puritans wanted to enforce this on the rest of America. And this is so you get into a lot of different things happening in all of these culture wars. But the political Puritans today, they're not interested in religion. It's not, it's not a religious doctrinaire. It's a social justice doctrinaire that they want to enforce on the rest of the world. They've, they've, devi- they've gone away from religion and then now accepted a much more secular view of these things. You can't say these words. You can't advocate these things. Uh, you, if, you, if you say that you believe this, this, or this, well, you're going to be ostracized or canceled or something else. And I'm going to talk about how this even translates into all kinds of weird stuff. There's an article this week I'm going to get into. I mean, it's, it's absolutely ridiculous how these things, how it's going in this culture war. So let me continue the article. The Puritans' move across the pond was motivated by both religion and commerce. Now, it depends on which group of Puritans you're talking about. Yes, the Puritans themselves, who arrived a little later, 1626 and beyond, were certainly interested by financial motivation. I mean, these are people that owned large plantations in the Caribbean. Even when they're talking about how evil slavery is in North America, they support it in the Caribbean. Uh, But regardless, um, yeah, there certainly was. But the earliest pilgrims were more interested in a purely religious experience. And this is what Morton ran into with the pilgrims. Now, there certainly were Puritans who did things like cancel Christmas because it wasn't, it wasn't in line with traditional Christian theology, at least as thought, the way that we, we celebrated it in England, you know, which was giving gifts and the, you know, the much more celebratory, festive side to it. The, the Puritans certainly were. They, I mean, they canceled Christmas. They didn't want to dance. They didn't like singing. All these things, at least initially, were seen as kind of weird. The Quakers also did some of this stuff. But the Puritans were certainly much more strict on these than, than say, the Orthodox Church of England, right? But Morton was there only for the latter reason, as one of the owners of the uh, Wollaston Company. He loved what he saw of his new surroundings, later writing that Massachusetts was the masterpiece of nature. Now, that is interesting because he doesn't have the puritanical view of the environment, whereas the Puritans themselves have a different view, and that's actually in this piece. His business partner, slave-owning Richard Wollaston, moved south of Virginia to expand the company's business. In fact, uh, Morton and Wollaston were at 
at odds over slavery in, uh, in Massachusetts. But Morton was already deeply attached to the land. In a way, his more religious neighbors likely couldn't understand. Quote, he was extremely responsive to the natural world and had a very friendly relations with the Indians, says Heath, while the Puritans took the opposite stance, that the natural world was a howling wilderness and the Indians were wild men that needed to be suppressed. This is true. I mean, the Puritans thought that the environment was there to be endured, whereas Morton and even men in Virginia saw this as a bountiful place. You had all this opportunity to really enrich your life with this natural world. After Wollaston left, Morton enlisted the help of some brave recruits, both English and native, to establish the break-off settlement of Marymount, also known as Marymount. Marymount, also known as Marymount, preserved today in the Quincy neighborhood and park of the same name. Morton essentially asked his neighbors, what if we just throw Wollaston out and start our own utopian colony based on Plato's Republic and also as a society of the Native Americans, explains Rhiannon Knoll, a specialist in the books and manuscripts department at Christie's in New York. And that sounded a lot better to them, some of them at least. The Puritan authorities didn't see Marymount as a freewheeling annoyance. They saw it as an existential threat. The problem wasn't only that Morton was taking goods and commerce away from Plymouth, but that he was giving that business to the Native Americans, including trading guns of the Algonquins. Now, the existential threat was also a cultural existential threat. The Puritans and the progressives of this day sit around wondering if somebody somewhere is having fun that they shouldn't be having. So they go after them. Unless it's, nowadays it's a kind of a hedonistic fun, but my gosh, you put up a symbol they don't like, you say a word they don't like, and you have to be punished. It's just ridiculously stupid. These people are juvenile. And they're un-American in that way. At least in our, in our understanding of uh, liberty today. With Plymouth's monopoly dissolved and its Perceived enemies armed, Morton had perhaps done more than anyone else to undermine the Puritan project in Massachusetts. Worse yet, in the words of Plymouth's Governor William Bradford, Morton condoned a dancing and frisking together with Native Americans, activities that were banned even without Native American participation. It was basically an early colonial version of Footloose. Governor Bradford nicknamed Morton the Lord of Misrule, and it's not hard to imagine him wearing that title like a crown. So William Bradford's an interesting guy. Uh, this is a man that saved the Plymouth Colony through capitalism, essentially. He ditched the communism that they had adopted early on. But, but, he certainly didn't like this next-door neighbor doing something that was culturally problematic to the pilgrims. You see, so what, where this deviates from think locally, act locally... Bradford could have kept his community very isolated from, from Morton, and that the two never had to meet. But yet, that was a problem to Bradford, because he saw it as a, as a problem for his own people. What if these people came in to see us? What if, the, what if there's interaction between these people, and these people are doing something, and then my people go away, and what if the, what if the Algonquins decide to attack us? But what would the pilgrims, who are supposedly good to the Indians, have to fear from the Algonquins? Well, I mean, Morton said the, they weren't that the pilgrims were not good to the Indian tribes. This is one thing, particularly when you get to the Puritans. This is why uh, you eventually had some of these splits that you had in, in the Massachusetts Bay Colony. There would be no greater symbol of such misrule than Morton's maypole, 
Reaching 80 feet into the air, the structure conjured all the vile, virile vices of Merry England that the Puritans had hoped to leave behind. Throughout medieval Europe, maypoles had been a popular installation for May Day or Pentecost or Midsummer in some regions, encouraging human fertility as the land itself sprung up from winter. Now that was a tradition that Morton could get behind, and he gladly called upon the residents of Marymount to drink, dance, and frolic around the pole. The establishment of Marymount had been a provocation, but Morton's May Day celebrations meant war. During the 1628 festivities, a Puritan militia led by Miles Standish invaded Marymount and chopped down the Maypole. The incident later inspired Nathaniel Hawthorne's short story, The Maypole of Marymount, first published in 1832. Morton was tried for supplying arms to the natives and expelled to an island off the coast of New Hampshire to be left for dead. Somehow he managed to hitch passage on a ship back to England where he sent, sued the Massachusetts Bay Company. The trial provided him with the basis for his book, much of which was composed at London's Merimaid, uh, Mermaid Tavern with a little help from his friends, including famed poet and playwright Ben Johnson. So they canceled him. They banned him and canceled him. I mean, this is the Puritans. This is what we see today. I mean, can you ima- imagine a pure progressive mob marching in? That symbol, that statue has to come down. It's a symbol of all that we ate. You're bucking modern society. It must be destroyed. <laughs> I mean, this is what we see. Marching in with their little black outfits and their little signs. These are the Puritans. And it's silly. It's silly. Heath is careful to stress that the book is not a literary masterwork, but he acknowledges that it has its moments. Knowles says she was particularly struck by the nicknames Morton's threw at his Puritan foes, whom he called uh, cruel sashismatics. It's hard to know who got it worse between Standish and John Endicott, governor of the Massachusetts Bay Colony, Plymouth's neighbor to the north. Endicott is known in the book as Captain Littleworth, Standish as Captain Shrimp. Even more radical than his belittling appellations were Morton's subversive policy ideas, which went so far as to recommend dismarshalizing the colonies. Unsurprisingly, the Puritans were appalled. Bradford, Plymouth's governor, called New English Canaan an infamous and scurrilous book against many god and chief men of the country. Many good, sorry, this is the way you spelled it. Full of lies and slanders and fraught with profane calumnies against their names and persons and the ways of God. Many good and chief men of the country. But what you're seeing here, he's taking aim at the Puritans, the Massachusetts Bay Colony, and the Pilgrims, which are different. I mean, so they're not all the same thing. They're sort of Puritans, but they're sort of not. And they certainly had this idea of purifying the church and dissent from that. But we have this progressive coalition now developing. Social justice must be inflicted upon Thomas Morton. It's likely that the book scandalized England as well. The book's title page names Amsterdam as the place of publication rather than London. But that's hard to believe, as the very Amsterdam publisher was in fact a well-known purveyor of Puritan books. Knowles says that Amsterdam was likely listed as a lie to protect the actual publisher in London. After publishing the book, Morton Bray to venture back to his beloved Massachusetts, only be turned right back around upon arrival. He tried to cross the Atlantic once again in 1643 and was this time exiled to Maine, where he died. His maypole may have been chopped down and his book banned, but Morton's legacy lives on in Quincy, though sadly there's no maypole in Marymount Park. 
So this is a great story, but it's it's indicative, it's a nice example of this political Puritanism that we see today. The mob showing up, we have to tear down these symbols! The Maypole was a symbol to them, and it had to be torn down, chopped down with an armed militia. Because it was heretical. It was against the liberty of the community. That was a threat to them. Had to take it down. Have to take down that statue. Have to take down that symbol. You can't say these words. This is why this part of American history is so dangerous long term. Because this is a cultural thing that we have in America. All right. So, I thought that was a fun little story to illustrate the political Puritans of the squad and Pelosi and Biden and all these people in America, all these leftist SJWs who run around trying to tear everything down, take every can't have this, can't do that, can't do this. That's what they are. They're political Puritans, and they're a disaster, and they're dangerous. Particularly for traditional American assumptions of individual liberty, which more Americans believe in than this type of liberty of the community, with its hypocritical element of, if you're in the elites, you can do whatever you want. All right. Hope you enjoyed this episode of The Brian McClain and Show. I'll see you next time for the next one. See you then.